Revelation chapter 15 is our passage for today. We are going to read this short chapter together. And I want us to lean in, lean in as always to God's word, to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Holy Word, the Spirit of God, to empower the Word of God, to edify the people of God. And so let's lean in to God's Word together. Revelation 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I want to go back and really look at what God's word is saying in this chapter. John, again, you have to take everything in context. Uh, that's why um, it's all connected. You know, uh, last Sunday was a prerequisite to fully understanding this Sunday. Now, if you missed last Sunday's sermon, God's word will still speak regardless. Uh, but you need to see each sermon as a part of a bigger picture. It's like a puzzle. And the more pieces that you put together, the clearer the picture becomes. And so today we're seeing this, and every piece is essential to completing the puzzle. And so today we have this very important piece of the apocalyptic puzzle that is the book of Revelation in chapter 15. But we just came out of Revelation 14, one of the most gruesome passages in the entire Bible. Um, it's just shockingly graphic in its imagery of the angels of God trampling the wine press of his fury. And these, this, this river of blood that is 180 miles long and five feet deep, um, just that 
the imagery would have really been relevant to the original audience because they all knew what a wine press was. They all had walked by a wine press or had personally been involved in pressing the grapes, trampling the grapes. But for many of us in North America, that image is not immediately relevant. That metaphor is not immediately relevant because we, we go to the store and there's a bottle of grape juice. So we go to the store and there's a bottle of wine. And we have, many of us have very little understanding of how that juice was created, the fruit of the vine. But it takes the crushing, right? The grape has to be crushed in order to produce the juice in order to produce the wine. And that's that graphic imagery of chapter 14. And then we roll into chapter 15 and John sees another great and marvelous sign, right? So he's seeing just in rapid succession, these incredible images, these captivating images. And he says here, he looked and he saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image. Who are, who are these standing by the sea in the presence of God that had been victorious over the beast? Because in the previous 14 chapters, the beast has been victorious over the people of the lamb, the followers of the lamb. If you remember in chapter 13 and, and, and following, it looked as if the beast had won. It looks as if the Antichrist had won, that God had allowed the beast, God had allowed Satan to conquer the people of the Lamb. And yet it says here in chapter 15 that these people that were slaughtered by the beast are standing in victory in the presence of God. They are having a victory rally in heaven at the same time that the beast is having a victory rally on earth because it appears as if he has won. It appears like he has defeated the followers of the lamb. He has attacked and slaughtered those that remain true to their biblical convictions. Yet by the estimation of heaven, these that had been defeated by the beast are ultimately victorious. These are conflicting versions of the same events, the truth of scripture versus the propaganda of the enemy. This passage about this group standing in the presence of God beside this sea of glass, and they're standing in victory, and they're given, this is a special group that's given a special instrument to sing a special song, Right? So this is the VIP section in heaven, and it's filled with martyrs. And they are singing a victory song. This passage made me think of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The apostle Paul suffered greatly for his faith. Ultimately, he was imprisoned and tortured and murdered. 
ultimately, he was decapitated because he refused to surrender his biblical convictions. He refused to compromise his faith. He refused to, to deny Jesus Christ. And yet he says, I consider that my present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the future glory fueled his perseverance in his present circumstance. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives this litany of struggles where he was, uh, he was homeless. He had lost everything for the sake of the gospel. He was beaten multiple times and left for dead. He was in danger in the country, in danger in the city, in danger from false believers. And he said, on top of all this, I have this weight of the concern for the church, this this unrelenting drive to build the church, no matter the cost. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep, uh, as sheep to be slaughtered. No, listen, verse 37, chapter eight. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, in, in trouble, in hardship, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is incredibly strong language in, in the language of the New Testament. It's the strongest possible way to say that we are victorious. He doesn't say we are conquerors. He says we are more than conquerors. The Apostle Paul is saying what looks to be defeat is actually for the Christian when we perceive our circumstance through the lens of faith, that hostility authenticates our faith and becomes kindling. The persecution backfires and actually becomes kindling for our convictions. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see the early church thriving in the midst of intense persecution. It's as if the persecution is fuel for the early church. One church father said the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And we see the church in different parts of the world today that seem to be thriving in spite of the persecution. The church in the Middle East Iran in particular, 
where revival is beginning to break out in an area uh, that is hostile to Christianity. We see the church in China, the church in parts of Africa, the church in parts of South America, and it's as if persecution becomes an opportunity for us to experience the love of Jesus and identify with his sacrifice in ways that are impossible in the midst of prosperity. And so we have to be careful when we pray for revival because we see the context in which revival happens in the New Testament is hostility. And so could it be that our prayers are being answered through increased persecution, that God is sifting his people, that God is refining his people in the furnace of affliction. He is testing the authenticity of our faith. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, so think about this passage in Revelation 15, and this group that had been that had lost everything on the earth. They're now standing in victory in heaven. They're singing a song of victory on the other side of slaughter. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, and the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christians should have this radically different view of death. The early church had this otherworldly view. They had an alien view of death death and dying that set them apart, that made them strange. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of this victory, we now serve the Lord relentlessly. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, stand firm. In light of this victory that we have already received through Jesus Christ, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Christians aren't moving towards victory. We are moving from victory. We aren't sacrificing in order to attain victory. We are serving sacrificially because we have already attained it in Jesus Christ. There is this countenance of confidence that every Christian should have in spite of our circumstance. When people see us, it should not make sense. How can you be so peaceful in a life that is so saturated with suffering? How can you be so calm in the midst of such turbulence? It's because we have already attained victory. These, this group in heaven, it's a special group given a special instrument to sing a special song. And they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. This verse immediately should hyperlink us to Exodus chapter 15. 
The book of Revelation is saturated with Old Testament allusions and references, much more so than any other book in the New Testament. And the partner passage for Revelation 15 is Exodus 15 in the Old Testament. This hyperlink to the Exodus story, which was the primary act of God in the Old Testament and the primary foreshadowing of God's ultimate deliverance through the Messiah, Jesus. One commentator says, the Israelites stood on the far shore of the Red Sea and observed the death of their enemies through God's power. In the last days, victorious saints likewise stand on the far side of their troubles and the persecutions of the beast. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. And so this group in heaven is singing the song of God's servant, Moses. Now, most of us know Moses as a leader, a prophet, but I really didn't know him as a worship leader. But when Exodus chapter 15, we have the song of Moses. And I want us to think about everything that has happened in the book of Exodus up to this point. Think about that everything that just happened. So this song of Moses is on the other side of the Red Sea. So he has led conservative estimates, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Hebrew slaves out of 400 years of bondage. And God manifested his power in multiple ways to bring about their deliverance. Think about everything that just happened in Exodus, the plagues, the 10 plagues, culminating in the final and most devastating, the death of the firstborn. So I want you to think about, this is the context for the song of Moses. This is the context for their worship, that hundreds of thousands of people were killed in one night, from infants to elderly. This was the 10th and final and most devastating of the plagues that God sent judgment on Egypt. God did it. This wasn't Satan. This was God sending his messenger, the angel of death. And based on the population of Egypt at the time, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that died in one night. That's the general context of the song of Moses. The immediate context is the death of an entire army. So back in Exodus chapter 14, God protected his people. There was a cyclone of fire that stood between the army of Pharaoh and the Hebrew community, and it was divine intervention. And they stood on the edge of the sea, and they were trapped and yet God made a way. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. They were completely dependent on an act of God, and God parted the Red Sea, and he brought about deliverance, but then by those same waters, he brought about destruction. The general context of the devastation of the death of the firstborn, the unimaginable devastation um, in Egypt, and then the specific context 
of thousands of soldiers that are killed in a matter of minutes. So hundreds of thousands are killed in a night. Thousands of soldiers are killed in a matter of minutes. And Moses and Miriam lead a worship service celebrating who God is, celebrating deliverance and destruction. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 15 from Exodus chapter 15. And I'd encourage you to read the song of Moses and and of Miriam this week, because it, it talks, this is a song equivalent to what we would sing in church on a Sunday. They are singing a praise to God about his deliverance and about his destruction. And in Revelation chapter 15, we find this group of people singing the song of Moses about the deliverance of God, but also about the destruction of evil. The vision now shifts to the temple, Old Testament images of tabernacle, an altar, the throne, a cloud, a fire, thunder, they all converge in Revelation to represent in various fashion the presence of God in his splendor and majesty and beauty. We have, again, images of Moses on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And so you have, again, these very strong Old Testament images that God is using to communicate what's going to happen what's happening in heaven, and what's going to happen on the earth in the end of days. John sees seven angels coming out of the heavenly temple. This continues the very clear theme of sevens in the book of Revelation. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, and seven bowls. It's more than recapitulation, it's escalation. The seals affect one-fourth of the earth. The trumpets affect one-third of the earth. We can speculate that the thunders affect affect one-half of the earth, and the bowls are poured out on all of the earth. Everyone is eventually radically affected by God's judgment. And it's wave after wave of warning. That's what it is, warning after warning after warning. People given every opportunity to repent. And yet there's a supernatural persistence in unbelief in spite of these manifestations of God's power, multiple manifestations of God's power. And there's this demonic persistence in unbelief in the face of undeniable manifestations of God's power, similar to the plagues in Egypt. Wave after wave of warning, and yet they persisted in their unbelief. And the manifestations backfired and hardened their hearts to the reality of who God is. The book of Revelation showcases the wrath of God. Like no other book in the Bible, the last book highlights his holiness, his character, and therefore his wrath. 
The wrath of God is the consequence of his holiness. God doesn't decide to judge. Judgment is the byproduct of his character. He is perfect in holiness. Therefore, judgment happens in his presence. Anything imperfect is automatically prosecuted in his presence. He is a perfect judge. And so when we come before God, he never decides to judge us. Judgment is an unavoidable consequence of his character. Because he is a perfect judge, he always prosecutes a crime. His perfect justice is intolerant of every sin. He has a holy hatred for every evil. This is the primary problem with humanity because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all deserve judgment. All deserve wrath. I deserve the judgment of God. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve because of my rebellion, because of my willful sin, I deserve to spend eternity separated from God in hell. All deserve the same punishment because all are guilty of the same crime. There's different expressions, but the same, the same root of rebellion. This is why the gospel is good news. God has constructed a bridge into his presence in the shape of a cross. The only way into God's presence is through the perfection of his son. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why Jesus had to come in order for any of us to have hope of re-entering Eden, of re-entering the presence of the triple holy God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father's presence but through me. The only way into his presence is through the perfection of his son. We To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ is an essential prerequisite to entering heaven, to entering the, the temple in heaven, the presence of God. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus lived the perfect life that God requires in order to have a relationship with him. And he received the penalty that God, that God's justice demands. He, he satisfied the justice of God. As the wrath of God was poured out on him, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He received, he received my sinfulness. He received your sinfulness. My sins were imputed, were transferred to Christ. This is the great exchange that is the heart of the gospel. And when I, when I, by grace through faith, activate this gift that has been purchased with the blood of God's son, the most precious gift. Praise be to God for this indescribable gift in this season of buying and giving gifts. I want us to think of the 
indescribable gift of salvation that came at the cost of the Son of God. He received my sinfulness, and I receive his righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The primary figure in the book of Revelation is the lamb, the lamb that was slain. The saints celebrate the deliverance brought about by the blood of the lamb placing their faith in the power of the blood to save. And again, this hyperlinks to the Exodus story in the Old Testament. The Egyptians could have been saved after multiple manifestations of God's presence and power. The Egyptians could have been saved if only they had put the blood on their door. The Israelites could have been killed. We don't know. Perhaps there were some Egyptians that were a part of the Exodus because they, by faith, put blood on their door. And perhaps there were some Israelites that were killed by the angel of death because of their lack of faith, because they did not put blood on their door. It's not about the people in the house. It's about the blood on the door. It's about the lamb. But this gift has to be activated by, by faith. The people weren't saved because they were Hebrews. They weren't saved because they were Israelites. They weren't saved because of their good deeds. There is only one reason that they were saved, and it had nothing to do with who they were. It was all about the blood of the lamb. They placed their faith in the blood. God didn't send an angel to smear the blood on the doorpost of his people. Individuals had to make this decision for themselves, and so do we. When we don't choose to receive the gift that was bought with the blood of Jesus, when we don't, when we choose to place our faith in our own ability to save ourselves, the religion of secular humanism that is cloaked in Christianity. It, the, the Apostle Paul told Timothy in the last days, I mean, th this is not blatant atheism. No, it's much more subtle and dangerous. People will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And so churches will be thriving in the end, in the end of days, but authentic faith will be the exception. When we don't choose to receive the gift that was bought with the blood of Jesus, when we place our faith in our own ability, to save ourselves, when we reject the most precious gift that anyone could ever offer us, we stand guilty before the judge. Every sin that we have ever committed is amplified and highlighted in his presence, and we receive the wrath that we deserve, eternal separation from his presence in hell. Hell is the unavoidable consequence of rejecting the gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what's the message? The message really is what it's always been from the very beginning. This is the message of the prophets, repent. This is the message 
of John the Baptist. Repent. This is the message of Jesus. Repent. This is the message of the early church. Repent. And this should be the message of every church, of every culture, of every age. Repent. Judgment is coming. Therefore, get right with God now. Don't wait until it's too late. The Bible says that Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it results in glory to God alone. And so to stop trying to construct the bridge into God's presence through human effort. This works-based theology. If I could just be a good person, then God will be obligated to accept me because I'm better than other people. And we need to realize, again, who God is. That's why worship in the Bible is all about him. It's all about his holiness. It's all about his character. It's all about his judgment. And when we stand in his presence, it will not be our good deeds that are amplified. On the contrary, it'll be our sinfulness in the perfect light of his presence. He will not decide to judge us. No, judgment will be the unavoidable consequence of his character. We will be evicted from his presence by his holiness. And his love will not overrule his holiness. So respond now. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The Bible says everyone. It doesn't matter. Egyptian, Israelite, it doesn't matter the specific address. It doesn't matter the culture, the language. All that matters is the blood. Coming to the Lord's table is a recommitment of our decision to place our faith unapologetically in Jesus Christ. Every time we drink from the cup, we put another coat of blood on the door as a reminder of how we are saved from judgment. Every time we come to the table, we are acknowledging our inadequacy and proclaiming his sufficiency. Some of you may approach the table by faith for the first time today. I'm not asking if you've observed communion before. I'm not asking if you've gone through the ritual of the Lord's Supper. I'm not asking if you've sipped some juice and eaten a little piece of bread, but to truly participate in communion. There's something, it's more than ritual. It's relationship. It's reaffirming a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we're no longer out in the yard as strangers and foreigners, that we're, we're no longer even on the front porch in the outer courts as Gentiles, but now we have a seat at the table, and it's a 
table that is reserved for family, brothers and sisters connected by the blood, connected by the elements. And this is what mystically connects us with the church of 2000 years ago. And this is what supernaturally connects us with the church all over the world today is that we have different styles, but it's the same supper. It's the same body and blood. It's the same table that we sit around. The table is a place for us to remember. But in light of the book of Revelation, it's also a reminder. So it's we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, but that's not the end of the story. And Easter isn't the end of the story. And Pentecost isn't the end of the story. The book of Revelation contains the ultimate end of the story. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. And again, Jesus was murdered during Passover. So much there, so much there. Um, That Jesus walked out on a stage that was thousands of years in the making. And he was murdered during Passover as the ultimate lamb of God. And he says in Matthew chapter 26, during the last supper, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, this is the part here. We remember his sacrifice, but we are reminded of his return. I tell you, Jesus says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And we'll get to this part in the book of Revelation when there is the marriage supper of the lamb, when there is the feast to end all feasts, the party to end all parties. And so as we approach the table, we remember his sacrifice and we are reminded of his imminent return. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.